welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing so well, it should be illegal. How are you today, Tim? <laughs> well, maybe it is illegal. I guess we don't know why you're doing so well. Well, arrest me. <laughs> I'm doing great over here. And uh, I'm really excited that in this episode we get to introduce a new member of the family, a new show on the Crawl Space Media Podcast Network called A Few Bad Apples. This is such a cool show, um, and Catherine is such a cool host. She's so knowledgeable and so articulate in this particular field, uh, which you really have to give her some props on this. She's entering into a conversation that is a difficult conversation to have, talking about the fact that... We live in these times where police continue to use excessive force. It sometimes results in death. Police brutality is a major hot topic. And Catherine decides to, on her own accord, enter into this conversation and feature these stories on this podcast, A Few Bad Apples. And to be clear, the podcast is called A Few Bad Apples because that is the case. There are a few bad apples that really make the rest of uh, police work and police officers look bad. And the majority are wonderful. The majority do their job well, but it's these few bad apples that stand out. And she does highlight good stories at the end of each episode, which really puts a spotlight on that division between the brutality and those abusing their power and the ones who are actually protecting and serving. And you can focus on both of them. Definitely, definitely a conversation that we need to have and one that we need to learn from. Absolutely. Yeah. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Catherine. We get to learn a little bit about her and where she's coming from with the show. And and the show is great. So definitely subscribe to A Few Bad Apples and check out all of our shows on the Crawlspace Media Network at crawlspace-media.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter. We have a new company Twitter handle at Crawlspace Media. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine of A Few Bad Apples. How are you today? I'm good. How are you guys? We're doing excellent. We're very excited about this episode because this is the formal episode where we announced that A Few Bad Apples has been gracious enough to join the Crawl Space Media Network. Welcome to the cult, I mean family. Uh, it's great to have you uh, bringing your content, uh, your very important content, to our network, um, it really expands our, our genre. It, it expands what we talk about. It's a very important and very topical as far as material is concerned. But we know that you are located, I don't even know what day it is where you're located. It's so far away. Uh, so we appreciate you taking the time out of whatever day it is to join us from your, um, from your very glamorous uh, recording studio. <laughs> yeah, thank you. No, I'm really excited to share with you guys and just be here and, you know, talk all things police and the podcast. Great. Okay, so who are you? Let's talk about you. What is your background? I am a high school English teacher, um, a military wife, and um, a mother of two, and <laughs> I just lived this crazy life and <laughs> um, oh, on the sunny island of Oahu. Ah, well, aloha. Aloha. I think that means goodbye, Lance. It also means hello. <laughs> yes, multiple meetings. I was not trying wow. to end the interview. This is layered already. Shit. Very layered. So speaking of layers, you said you're a, a mother of two 
a high school school teacher and the wife of someone who's in the military. And then you were like, I don't have enough to do, so I'm going to start a podcast. And your podcast sort of took off like a little bit of a wildfire. Yeah, um, it was a COVID-born idea in the middle of all of the craziness and staying at home. I was like, I have a really good idea. I think I'm going to try something out. And I didn't even know anything about podcasting at all. And I figured it out. And then I started seeing people like really respond and like email me. And, and then it just started blowing up. And now I am where I am. And it's just crazy. It's, it's really unbelievable. And tell us about the focus of your podcast. Well, I am focusing on the quote unquote bad apples of the police. Um, I actually am an advocate for police. And I just think that overall, the system just needs to start with some really good reform. I know we we hear the word reform all the time, like we need change, we need change, but I don't know if it's really materialized. And so I just wanted to focus on the stories that might have gotten forgotten with all the new current stories. Like, I mean, just yesterday, there was a new story. And every day, it just keeps piling up. And I think a lot of times we have victims whose stories just never got told or never shared on the media. And that's kind of the premise of it, to keep those victim stories alive, but also taking a closer look at the departments themselves to see if there were any red flags that maybe they overlooked that could have been probably nipped pretty early on, but unfortunately, you know, just got overlooked and the problem escalated to where it was. And I really dig the title of your show, A Few Bad Apples, because it makes you want to listen to this to figure out, you know, it's not like you're coming out with something that is uh, just straight up pro-law enforcement. You're, you're identifying a problem and you know you're going to get some controversy there, and that makes me want to listen to this to hear how you uh, tackle the topic of a few bad apples being in the police force. Um, any industry that you uh, dig deep enough into, you'll find that there's a few bad apples anywhere, uh, and it just so happens that the ones that are in law enforcement tend to wield their power more uh, aggressively than, say— you know, um, even in uh, the teachers union or something like that, you know, there's a few bad apples there as well, but they're not directly involved in, in so much life or death or social structures um, in, in the sense of like classifying people. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's there, there's a there's a, a, a very impactful way that these few bad apples can stand out from the good apples. And how do you do that? How do you separate that? So what I tried to do is I tried to see if there was like a problem, like a specific problem. And I try to unfold the problem so that listeners understand before telling this story. So for the example, um, I think with mental health crisis, there have been so many episodes lately that I've done. Um, I think the problem is that you know, the departments are not equipped with the resources to respond to a lot of these calls. But Unfortunately, the public only knows to call 911. And so, um, which, you know, that's a double-edged sword at the end because they respond and they use tactics that are probably not appropriate. And then, you know, the person dies. Um, and so 
I'm just trying to inform that there are specific problems, and I try to highlight them in every episode, um, that they could address. And then I use the story as an example to highlight how that problem, you know, continued. And then, um, but then I end the episode with a positive story because it really does leave a bad taste in people's mouth when you're just negative, negative, negative. And that's not really the case across the country. I think it's just... It's just a bad blend of, you know, negative media, and that's why I don't want to end that way. But I do try to use these specific problems to, like, propel it into the listeners to know, like, hey, there are things that can be fixed. It's just, I don't know if it's really anyone has taken the time to do it. Well, that is a uh, quite an undertaking. And uh, <laughs> these are uh, definitely some big problems that you're looking at and trying to tackle. And do you, I'm, I'm just curious about backlash for your, your premise. Do you often, or wh- I guess, what do you say if someone approaches you and says, you're a law enforcement hater, you want to defund the police and everything they stand for? Well, I have had just... Really, I think I've only had one person question anything that I'm doing. They thought that I was um, anti-police and anti-law like enforcement or something. I mean, uh, not law enforcement, but just like first responders. And I was like, I don't think you're listening to the show. Did you ever listen? And um, and then the person listened and wrote me back and was like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. I'm like, I'm not anti-police. That's not the message. And I will say it like every single interview <laughs> so that people know that I'm not. But do I think think the system needs work? Yes, definitely. But that's not the goal to say, hey, we're bashing police officers. I appreciate what they're doing and stuff. So I really haven't received, surprisingly, any negative feedback. Um, If anything, people are like, keep doing the work. Like, you know, we commend you. Like, this is crazy that you're doing this. And, And I'm like, okay, good. So for the most part, it is a good message. Yeah, that's awesome. And and it's a message that you're communicating really well. And I think if you want to get to the bottom of it, you have to look at these individual situations and you have to say what went wrong here so that you can take the collective uh, whole and find a common denominator, which might have something a little bit deeper rooted into it, which then you can get to the solution. But you don't get to the solution until you have the conversation. And the conversation is so goddamn hard to have because first you have to overcome those hurdles where you have to preface everything by saying, I'm not anti-police. I'm not defund the police. I'm not, you know, anti-law enforcement or anti-first responders. I am pro all of this. And that's why I'm doing it, because I want it to work the way it should work. Um, So that was just an observation. Getting to the bottom of that, though, I, I think that word that is starting to lose its meaning is systemic. We keep using this word systemic because there's systemic racism and there's systemic problems in every um, organization and every not crawl space media though in everything except crawl space media <laughs> and there's systemic problems in everything uh how do you go about giving that word its meaning back and identifying the these deeper deeper issues well i do think that you know these systemic problems within the departments um have there have to be people that know about it. You know, there's, there's people that know what's going on and unfortunately people get complacent and, you know, you might have developed a relationship with someone and you let it continue. And so that's how I use the stories to kind of highlight those problems specifically. 
and saying, hey, um, you know, there were people who were questioning the integrity of this particular officer and even, you know, little red flags, but they turned their head towards it and they kind of allow it to continue. And it could be anything, not only like just racism, but just like corruption, you know, anything, um, sexual assault on victims, you know, that they pull over, you know, anything. And I think like, I think the problems beyond racism, actually, I just think it's, it's a collection of things that, um, if there's no set guidelines on how, what the problems are and how we're going to address them, it's just going to continue the way that it is going now. Here's a quick clip from a few bad apples. I found a recent article in USA Today that gives us a scope on how widely used no-knock warrants are in Kentucky, and the statistics are alarming. A report in USA Today said, quote, In the past two years, before the city banned them in June, Louisville Metro Police Department officers received court approval for at least 27 no-knock warrants, allowing police to legally break into homes without first knocking, announcing themselves, and waiting for residents to respond, usually about 30 seconds, end quote. Keep in mind, listeners, that today's story takes place in that same city, Louisville. And Louisville police officers conducted the same type of no-knock warrant raid. To be exact, 82% of these searches were on African-American suspects. Keep that in mind when you hear the story's details because it really highlights the search's racial disparities. And we just played a clip of one of your episodes, and this one is about Breonna Taylor. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Well, I think in that particular case, I think... I don't know if it's racially motivated, but it seemed like the statistics in that particular community, Louisville, Kentucky, that um, the use of no-knock warrants was quite high. Um, It was no-knocks basically are just when police can, you know, not announce themselves and go into your home. And so um, on that specific day when they were going to Breonna Taylor's house, they were scheduled to do a no-knock. And I think that's where the controversy comes in. People are saying, no, they actually announced who they were and they did knock. But um, but from all of the other accounts, it didn't sound like that's the way it was. And I wanted to highlight that the reason why I sent that particular clip is that um, sometimes people think it's only police brutality, but these can be considered, you know, grievances against the public as well, like going into someone's house and just, you know, not announcing yourself, that could be a serious thing. And so that's why I wanted to highlight that there's not just brutality, you know, there's excessive force, and there's things like this, almost what you consider like an intrusion of privacy. So I thought that was an interesting clip to send. Because that was a serious problem in that community, which was predominantly African American. And what are some of the circumstances that you've found where a no-knock warrant is issued? Is it uh, typically violent crimes, um, criminals who are endangering themselves or others? Good question. When is it used appropriately? I, I'm guessing it was for for maybe not well it could be extremely violent i guess um in this particular circumstances they had been surveilling the home looking for um her ex-boyfriend who was involved in drugs so they they assumed that he was doing a drug trafficking scheme out of her home so that is the reason why and they're they're 
their reasoning for using those types of things is if we announce, then the, you know, people inside the house will get rid of the evidence and, you know, so that's the purpose of it. Now, I don't know if it's used for like violent crimes, but I was guessing it was maybe going to be for drug, you know, drugs so that they, so they catch the people off guard essentially. Right. And, and the individual in question um, that they were no knocking on the door was under suspicion for drug trafficking. So that would fall into a category that this could be considered, um, you know, appropriate for a no knock warrant. Um, there was also the talk that this wasn't even the right address, though, right? It was the right address. It's, it's the person they were looking for wasn't there. Right. <laughs> so right, right. Um, they were assuming that Brianna was um, maybe an accomplice to having some money involving the drugs and actually storing the drugs. But when they went in and after she was killed, they found that there was no evidence at all. Now, they had seen her with the ex-boyfriend and she still kind of had a little bit of a relationship rather you know friend or romantic i'm not sure but she she still communicated with that person and so they automatically assumed that she was involved in his actions so if she was there was nothing behind to indicate that at all it's a it's a crazy set of circumstances and this is the conversation that you have these are the conversations you have to get to the deeper issue which is maybe no knock warrants need to be reconsidered I understand that someone could flee the scene but is it really worth the risk of assassinating somebody who had nothing to do with it and subsequently having to go through taxpayer funded trials um, you know media exposure lawsuits when they could reevaluate the no-knock process. And what was sad about that is that her poor boyfriend, he had no idea what was going on. So the reason why they ended up shooting was because he was trying to defend his home. He had no idea, and he had a gun that was legally registered to him, and he fired a shot off because no one announced um, who they were. And that, I think it falls back onto that. No one said, hey, it's the police. They just barged in and he, you know, fired off his shot. And I mean, if you hear the interview in the episode, he's like completely terrified. I mean, he's just like, I didn't know what was going on. We were in bed. It was so late, you know, no indication that he knew what was going on. And, and, and that's the sad part about it. It's just like a matter of circumstances that, like you said, might've been prevented if they changed their policies. And then they ended up, um, uh, taking the boyfriend into custody because, you know, he shot an officer and it wasn't like he was deliberately doing it. And I think it was just a pile of unfortunate in, um, circumstances that just built up and it ended up the way it did. And it was just so, so tragic. And here is another clip from A Few Bad Apples. Officers, again, were trying to pin him down on the ground with his arms behind his back, but the officer's knee was pressing on his arm, so he did experience quite a bit of force that night. Finally, paramedics who responded to the scene were there to help, but police officers asked them to calm Elijah down, and what was their remedy for that? Their remedy was 500 milligrams of ketamine. In brief, the Denver Post stated that ketamine is a sedative that is used to calm people who are in a delirious or agitated state. It can cause low blood pressure and trouble breathing. The question here is why did they give it to him? 
I heard his voice on the recording and he is completely obedient. He definitely was struggling, but not once did it sound like he was doing anything to jeopardize the officer's lives or his own. The Denver Post reported that Aurora Police has protocols when to use ketamine, such as when a person is exhibiting extreme signs of deliriousness, paranoia, or even extremely aggressive behaviors, or experiencing hallucinations. The LA Times reported that a major issue in Elijah's case is the dosage he received of the ketamine. They gave him a man who weighs only 140 pounds, the same dosage of a man who should weigh 220 pounds. That equates to Elijah receiving one and a half times more ketamine than he should have. In actuality, he should have only received 315 milligrams. And can you tell us a little bit about the case of Elijah McLean? This is a really, I'm not going to say like popular in a good sense, but uh, one that was trending for a while in terms of people wanting to spread awareness. Um, he was a young a young man just walking home and for some reason someone called and thought he was suspicious. They called into police. Uh, he was wearing a hoodie and um, I believe he was wearing a face mask and that kind of was different maybe for someone, you know, to see someone down the street wearing that, but that by any means doesn't mean anything. So someone called and said, we have a suspicious person walking down the street. And then when the police arrived, they like tackled him down to the ground. Um, and he, he, I believe he had, uh, he might've been, I don't know exactly which, um, mental health, you know, issue he had, but he, he, he did have something and he was saying like, please, please let me go. I'm just trying to go home. And, they ended up holding him down in the knee restraint, and at some point, they administered ketamine. Um, they they recommended that ketamine be administered to him, but I, I think the problem here is that, first off, how, where do the police get to say, hey, let's let's subdue this person with a chemical, chemical substance? And for that matter, they gave him a completely wrong dosage. You know, they gave him way too much for his body weight. He was a small guy. Um, and I just looked at that as another source of excessive force, which I just wanted to highlight. That doesn't necessarily mean someone's being beaten down. But, well, they did use excessive force with the knee restraint. But then on top of that, they added the ketamine to sedate him. Well, getting to the excessive force um, topic and to, to revisit um Briona was the fact that they fired, I think it was over 30 rounds back into the apartment after the one round was fired from her boyfriend. And what he said was a warning shot, which they said might have hit one of the officers in the leg. Um, but I don't know if that was ever uh, verified that or confirmed that the uh, the bullet struck anyone. But when when does it become excessive on that end? Um, and and I do want to get back to the to the ketamine conversation because I I feel like both are sort of um, they they just sort of run parallel to each other. Whether you're firing thirty something shots after a warning shot without identifying yourself, or you're administering ketamine when you already have subdued uh, your your um, your your potential um, perpetrator, like why 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 is the stop button not switched why isn't that switch hit 
I wondered that. Like, yeah, they did. They sprayed the place. And actually, um, some of the bullets went into the neighboring, you know, complex, um, homes next door because they were in an apartment complex. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that was extremely excessive unless they felt like more people were in there and they were going to run forward. But, I mean, they never really assessed the scene. Are there any other people here before we start spraying the place? Like, that was the craziest part about it. And that is excessive force, you know, that is um, beyond, I think, your innate fear for, you know, like, life or death situation. So, I mean, shooting off 30 rounds or whatever it was, it was some extreme amount of bullets. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it was just way too much. And, I mean, look what happened. It could have hit someone and killed someone in the next house, too. Yeah, and and I I get it. You know, I have acquaintances and I have friends who are police officers who will say it's a dangerous job and and there's a constant fear of your life from the second you sign up to be a police officer you know you 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 do have that that constant fear for your life but where is the preparation for that where in the execution do you do is there any preparation for how to handle your yourself in in a situation where your life is actually directly threatened because i get it you know you go into you go into a dangerous environment you hear a gunshot when does when does one one shot back turn into 32 you know and when is what who's the person who's like stop shooting like we're not hitting anything we're just firing into walls yeah and and i think it stems back to when the police officer actually joins the force. I don't think that there is sufficient training. And that's something that I'm trying to find more information out with um, this partnership that I'm working on. Um, I think it all starts at the beginning when they sign up. They're not trained for those types of situations. Um, They receive actually quite minimal training, like between, depending on the department, it's very, very little, like maybe six to 12 weeks, depending on where you're at. Um, you know, to become an officer. And um, I think that, you know, they're not prepared for this type of encounter. Like, when do you start firing off a bunch of bullets? I I don't know. I think they trained them. Um, When I was talking to the founder of the Center for Criminal Justice Training Reform, that's what their their focus is, is right when the police officers join. Um, They're talking about how police officers are trained to be in the mode that they're going to die. And if they're running off of fear, it makes sense why they would do that. But is it logical or is there another way? Yes, but unfortunately, no one has trained them to know specifically what to do or how to respond in that circumstance, I think. I mean, this is my personal opinion about that. We couldn't really have this conversation without talking about George Floyd's death and the uh, the recent conviction of former police officer Derek Chauvin. What are you thinking about this case right now? I, um, I'm i really happy that, you know, the outcome came out the way it did. Um, I think that, I do think that this officer had um, a history that was questionable. You know, there were actions that maybe they could have nipped earlier on. Um, you know, I, I was, I didn't really look too much into the case, but I already had someone asking me to cover it <laughs> and I wanted to wait till it's over. But, uh, but I was hearing that, you know, he had some problems in his past on, on the force. And I think, 
if you start digging back, a lot of times that's where you could have prevented the problem to be where it was. And just watching that video is so, oh, it's so frightening the way he's just so nonchalant, just, you know, sitting there. And I don't know what George Floyd did, you know, I mean, whatever he did, it could never have been that bad for him to be on him for that long. I mean, I, I think technically the um, the detaining was over the counterfeit twenty dollar bill, which was a like the reasoning for the police to be there in the first place. Um, I couldn't help but think that had there been cell phone cameras in the eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds and nineteen forties thirties. This was akin to a public hanging for me, like a lynching. I mean, I couldn't help but think that when, um, especially when they showed the full nine and a half minute, nine twenty nine uh, minute video uh, during the trial, um, and they kept having to tell the to tell the jury, like, believe what you're seeing, like, believe what you're seeing. This is a murder, and it it really was a, a like with the like you said the nonchalant attitude. Um, in front of people knowing you have a camera on you, several cameras on you, including the one you're wearing. It was a brazen public lynching. And there's no other way to put it. What are your feelings about the other officers who are present who were keeping the crowd at bay and allowing this to happen? What, what punishment or what ramifications do they face now? Oh, that's a tough one. I feel like... You know, I think at some point um, they should have said, hey, okay, you know, he's he's calm, you know, because he really was just saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I think that should have been the first indicator. Like, hey, man, did you hear what he said? Let's get him up, put him in the back of the police car, take care of it, you know, down at the station. I feel like I do feel like someone should have chimed in. Um, But, you know, unfortunately, with maybe the crowd distracted them or I don't know if they just chose not to hear that or maybe they thought he's a big guy he could withstand that much pressure I I don't know what their reasoning was but I feel like somebody would have said hey um this that he's saying he can't breathe you know that's a that's not good um we need to get off of him you know and and handle it in a different way I do wish something would have happened in that case somebody nearby would have really stepped up and said uh you know look at the crowd they're seeing this going on like we yeah. got to get up you yeah. cannot do this they were trying to the crowd was and uh and the police they weren't so i don't know either they were afraid to say something or they thought floyd was lying i guess about not being able to breathe but you know everyone can see the everyone can see the clip everyone can hear him he's obviously dying there yeah and I've seen the knee restraint used in a case of Tony Tempa. Um, he he was um, having a mental health crisis, and the officers were on his back for 13 minutes, and they were joking around, teasing him while they were pushing him down. I mean, so I I personally think the knee restraint, the purpose of it was to briefly apprehend someone and calm them down just for a moment. But um, I do I agree with the use of it? Not really, but I see what it's for. Um, many departments since Floyd and, you know, have and before that have said, hey, we, we cannot use this um, this tactic anymore. And they're still using it for some reason. So it's crazy. It's, it's completely um, it's completely alarming for what it was designed to do and to what it's become. And now it's a symbol of death. 
Yeah. And to go back to the um, question about like why, you know, should someone have stepped up? I think the people that were there used the resources that they had uh, at their ready that wasn't going to get them killed as well. There was uh, Donald Williams, who was an MMA fighter, who was trained in, you know, if, if those men weren't wearing police officer uniforms and that was a fight on the street, he would have stopped that. But I'm sure a lot of people of color are looking at that moment and saying, if I go and touch that cop, I'm the next person with the knee on my neck. I'm the next person calling out to my my deceased mom because I know I know I'm next. Like I, I I we don't even know that type of fear. You know, we can we we can talk about it, but I I can't even imagine the frustration that just the desperation, the PTSD that those people have because they couldn't do it. They wanted to, but they couldn't. So they pulled out their phones and they started shooting it that way. But they couldn't step up because they would have been next. Yeah, I know. And and that's the scary part about it. It's that, that they are torn between what do I do and what can I do? And I heard that some of the people there were even calling 911. They're calling 911 against another officer, which is so, in itself, it just seems you know, so paradoxical, like I'm calling the police because this police officer is doing this to this person. And so it, I feel really bad for the people nearby witnessing that they really, really had no option of just standing by and watching to make sure that they had that proof. That's why it's so important for people to have their phones out and take that evidence because uh, otherwise, we're, if we didn't know about this, I mean, it would have been swept under the rug and tomorrow a new case would happen. So if that's why it's very important for that type of footage. And they did the best thing that they could. Where do we go from here, Catherine? <laughs> well, I'm going on summer break um, right when school ends. And I'm going to be planning season three and coming out with some new stuff. Um and just keep telling the stories because I don't want any one story to be forgotten. I, I feel like we need we need to do something. So I'm hoping to partner and have some information put out for listeners to just realize where the problem might be starting and how they could also help out and contribute to causes that are, you know, nonprofit and are really serving or aiming to serve the community in a in a positive way. That's fantastic and and um, good for you and uh, for tackling such a heavy topic. Um, it, it really uh, is, you know, because you you weren't assigned this. You went into this looking at it and saying, I, I'm choosing to do this. And that's uh, an undertaking that um, carries a lot of uh, carries a lot of uh, responsibility and weight. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you plan on covering the killing of Dante Wright, which was about I think it was like 10 miles away from where George Floyd was murdered and uh, involves the confusion between a taser and the service weapon that um, the officer didn't realize that she had in her hands um, and thought she was about to tase somebody. And uh, there's a <laughs> remarkable, uh, surreal uh, clip of Pat Robinson absolutely condemning this. Uh, and this is a, notoriously conservative right-wing uh, evangelist who's who's holding a, a, a pistol and like a, a police issued uh, pistol and and a taser 
absolutely astonished that these two could get confused. Um, and I think, I don't know why that just came to mind other than it was about as far off of someone who would be even talking about this as, as I could imagine um, in, in the sense where he, he was <laughs> blown away that it could happen. Uh, do you plan on covering this? And do you plan on uh, talking about the training behind that? Yeah, no, I, I do want to um, because it just happened. There's probably not enough um, resources right now. And I like to kind of wait for the newer cases to unfold a bit. But I, I do think that um, I could definitely cover that because I was so shocked. I was like, how how do you even confuse the two? I know it's a quick action that was happening. Um, she, you know, the officer was like moving very quickly. But I think that the, the feel of them and even the way that you have to pull the trigger versus, you know, know physically pushing the taser on someone is i i don't know how you could confuse the two yeah i definitely would like to cover that case awesome i I would love to hear what you uh what you come up with on that and just your take on that they're even on the other side of your body like they're put on the other side of your body for the reason where you don't confuse it with your strong hand pulling your gun so there's something and this is 26 year veteran there's something missing there and i really uh, really am curious to hear how, how you, uh, what your take is and, and how you can get to the, the root of that, if you can get to the root of that problem. I know, I know. I, I'm going to look and I maybe I could start looking into the background of that officer because I think that's a good place to start. And then looking at training, like what type of training did you have? And was it just a momentary glitch in your brain that made you go the wrong direction and grab the wrong uh, weapon? You know, I don't know. But I definitely will look into that because I just happened. And then yesterday there was the teenage girl who was shot. Um, So, I mean, I think that one's going to be controversial because um, the police officer shot her because she was about to get stabbed or stab someone else. Or, yeah, she was about to stab someone else. And so, I mean, I can understand that people are going to say, oh, they did the right thing. Because she was going to hurt someone else, but then they're going to say, why did you shoot her? You know, she's a teenage girl. Well, I mean, that raises the that raises a question. Um, there, was a, there was a young man who was just shot. I think he was 12 or 13 years old. He was shot and uh, looked like he had a weapon, then didn't have a weapon, and they, they fired. And then the, going back to the taser, why are they even pulling the taser in the first place? Because... They have the person's information. The person isn't reaching for a gun, and they're they're in their vehicle. If if they try to drive away, what is the harm in letting them drive away? You have their address. You you have the information on them. Why are we pulling a taser at all? Why why is that even happening at all? Um, this isn't this isn't diffusing a situation. This is escalating the situation, and it's escalating the fear amongst a certain group of people amongst a a marginalized, uh, damaged and threatened group of people. When when they see a police officer, they don't see a badge and protect and serve. They see a knee on their neck and they see a taser mistaken, you know, a gun mistaken for a taser or just a straight out gun. Like any one of us, we see a police officer on the street. We see someone who's there to uphold law and order. We don't see someone who's ready to publicly display our death. Like, how do they not see that this is something that is it, – it's it's not one action that's isolated. This is just another one that piles on. Yeah. Uh, it's sad because the public really has lost their trust. I mean, a lot of 
public, I should say, not everyone, but mo a lot of people, particularly, you know, people of color, they, they really don't know, can they trust the police? Will it end up to be a crime scene at the end of that call? Um, and, and it is, it's scary because, um, Overall, if we look at all departments across the country and all the cases we've heard, it's just a quick impulsive act. Why did they pull the taser out like you asked and why did they shoot 30 rounds? And it just comes to back down to training. It's just a matter of are these people even fit for the job? Um, like, did you weed out the ones that shouldn't be there? Um, you know, it, there's a lot of things that they could really, really take a closer look at and make sure that the departments are full of the people who are the fittest and the ones who are the most knowledgeable on proper ways to respond and to act. I think when it comes to any type of call, it should be, they know how to handle a mental health issue. They know how to diffuse a domestic violence scene or something. They should know how to handle all of the possible scenarios. That's, I mean, that's what I think. And I, and to answer your question, it's just, I don't know. I, I don't know where, where they go wrong. And, and unfortunately, it's, it is leading to this big problem that people are just mistrusting of the police. They just, I, I just don't know if they're the ones to call. And sometimes they'll let it escalate on their own without getting the police involved because they're fearful of the outcome. And every episode of yours, you, you discuss a, a good story about a police officer. Isn't that right? I try to find a story that it has nothing to do with the episode, but just um, a reminder that there are very heroic officers out there willing to put their lives out on the uh, on the line for the public. Um, not necessarily, you know, involving a particular crime, but it could be like a life saving effort, or you know, just just to show you that there are really good officers who are there. They're totally dedicated, and to kind of leave. Um, a positive message in your mind that only consider there's a few bad apples, but there are plenty of good officers. And I think, um, and a lot of viewers have said, Hey, I really, that's really refreshing at the end of this heavy heartbreaking episode. I don't want to make it seem like, you know, you just said they're all bad apples. Like we said in the beginning, you know, there's, there's many, many, many good apples and what I'm about to say, I don't want to make the problem seem less important by saying this, but I think there needs to be a better balance with with the, the mainstream media, like what you're doing. I think we need to talk about the systemic problem within law enforcement, but we need people who are the good apples to get some airtime and to say, I'm going into communities of color. I'm going into marginalized communities. I'm working with families. I, I, I want to see someone go to George Floyd's family, who's who's just a regular beat cop, and say, "What do you need me to do?" Um, I, I, I want to see that. It, it might be happening, but we don't see that. We, we only see the bad. We never see any of the good stuff. And I think that will empower others who might be on the fence. They might be feeling like they're they've been left behind. And they're threatened. And and maybe if they saw, well, no, I don't have to channel my energy into this anger. I can help the community. I can actually you know, protect and serve. I can actually protect. Yeah, I know. And, and you know what's crazy is that I always have a hard time finding a good Apple story. I have to search and search and search. and But I never have a hard time finding 
a story where there was a crime involving a police officer at all. And so it should not be that way. Why is it so hard for me to find a positive police story? Like, you know, I, I, I totally agree. I think the media should highlight it a lot more and give us a good blend of the unfortunate and the wonderful that's happening in our world. Um, but we're only seeing that negative. And I think that really skewed the public's perspective. And I really wish that there were more good Apple spotlights on the news every single day. And not only police officers, but I mean, like, firefighters and, you know, let's make it positive because they really do have a very difficult job. Could I do it? Absolutely not. (laughs) You know, because what the job entails is something that I could never do. And so I commend them. Thank you for taking on that role. Let's highlight the good people who have really put themselves out there. And let's highlight the good podcasters like you, Catherine, and your show, A Few Bad Apples, which is what we're doing here, highlighting you and your show. Uh, So everyone, you got to go check out this show. There are links in the show notes. Follow Catherine's journey. Catherine, when are your next new episodes coming out? I was supposed to have one this week, but it will be out late Monday night, um, the next episode. Thank you.